0: Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. When we left off in part one, police were still investigating how Mary had ingested the toxin colchicine. They still weren't sure a crime had been committed. However, everything changed when they received an anonymous letter naming Mary's son as the killer. Now, before we get to that letter, we want to discuss an earlier letter dated the day after Mary's death. This letter was written by Mary's older sister, Kathy, and it was handed to Bill at Mary's memorial service with instructions to open it in private. Kathy had just lost her husband a year prior to Mary's death from a prolonged illness. And on top of this, Kathy suffers from Parkinson's disease and knows more than most that life is fleeting and can change in an instant. In her letter, she offered Bill understanding during the grieving process. That letter read in part, quote, Dear Bill, I lost Bruce after his many-year battle with illness. I knew it was coming and still wasn't prepared. I can't even begin to imagine what you were feeling with Mary leaving us so unexpectedly. I know I am struggling to accept that this is real, and I want to wake from some terrible nightmare to find it isn't true. I don't want my sister to be gone. Your pain must be unspeakable. Everyone experiences grief in their own way. Each of us will discover our own way to mourn our loss and heal our grief. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts need time to rest and recover strength. In time, we'll remember the people we've had to bid goodbye without feeling pain. I believe that when we give ourselves permission to take the time we need to heal, we'll move past the mourning and back into lives of joy. Our loved ones would want that for us. I'll be praying for peace for you, Liana, Tammy, Adam, and all of your family. I love you all." Now, that letter doesn't sound like it was written by someone who was having a secret torrid affair for months, but that's just what three of Mary's other sisters believed when they first learned that Kathy and Bill were dating. And by all accounts, they began dating very quickly after Mary's memorial service. According to their own testimony, they began dating two months later. However, according to their text messages and emails, it was more like two weeks. It was this revelation that turned Mary's sisters against Bill, and rightfully so because the husband is more often than not the right suspect. However, when evidence points sharply away from the, quote, "'obvious suspect,' unquote, you should be open to hearing the new evidence." Unfortunately, Mary's three sisters weren't willing to look at anyone other than Bill and now possibly their sister Kathy as the only viable suspects. Their suspicions turned them into amateur investigators, causing them to gather their own evidence for the police. They even told police that they had gathered evidence proving that Bill and Kathy had been having a year-long secret affair. I'm going to refer to Mary's three sisters, Sharon, Sally, and Janine, collectively as the sisters, because they're a solid unit fighting for justice for Mary, even till this day. They strongly believe that Bill murdered Mary to be with Kathy. Their reasons are many, but we will go through their main theories even as they have changed and evolved over time. Among their reasons was the fact that Bill had recently inherited $400,000 from his late father's estate just prior to Mary's death. Bill wanted to retire and travel with Mary. However, this wasn't enough money for the both of them to retire on because of their alleged debts. This alleged motive doesn't make a lot of sense because inheritance is not community property. It is the sole and separate property of the beneficiary. So if Bill divorced Mary, he wouldn't have to give her any of his inheritance. Following the sisters' logic, Bill allegedly believed Mary would be a burden on his finances, which also wasn't true because Mary was 61 years old and was in excellent health with no signs of stopping anytime soon. Bill and Mary had discussed selling the practice or bringing on a second chiropractor and having Mary work less so that she could spend more time with Bill. The sisters' theory also contradicts itself because one of their original complaints is that Bill wanted Mary all to himself and monopolized her time. So when did he have time for an affair with Mary's older sister? Additionally, the letter written by Kathy clearly indicates that she was only offering a shoulder of support. However, Bill and Kathy both readily admit that within two months of dating, they were in love and blissfully happy with their second chance in life. After being tipped off about the alleged affair from the sisters, law enforcement began investigating Bill hard. The sisters even located a witness, one of Kathy's neighbors, who confirmed that Kathy and Bill had been dating each other prior to Mary's death, even embracing in her backyard and kissing on her front porch. The sisters even maintain a website where they still, to this day, insist that their older sister and Bill had begun an affair prior to Mary's death. The only problem with this is that the neighbor recanted and agreed that she had only seen Kathy embracing and kissing a gray-haired man that could have been Bill. Kathy had dated two other men following her husband's death and prior to dating Bill. To settle the affair allegation, law enforcement confirmed that while their relationship began quickly following Mary's death, it did start after her death. Law enforcement had text messages from a few weeks after Mary's death where Bill couldn't find Kathy's house because he had never been there before. He texted her and asked her to come out on the front porch and wave her hands since he couldn't see the house numbers. But none of this mattered because once the sisters realized Kathy and Bill were dating, they became 100% convinced that Bill had murdered their sister. And police were leaning that way too until the infamous anonymous letter arrived. The sisters weren't suspected of writing this letter because the letter writer named Mary's son, Adam Yoder, as her murderer. However, the letter didn't change the focus of their investigation. They still believed that Bill was their most likely suspect in Mary's murder. There were two versions of this letter, The first letter was sent to the medical examiner's office and the second letter was sent to the Oneida County Sheriff's office. And both letters were similar. It was clear that one was the first draft and one was the second draft. And in the first draft, the letter writer states that Adam had confessed to killing his mother because he was drunk. However, the second letter had slight changes and left out the part about Adam drinking. This will become important later in the investigation. While law enforcement weren't convinced the details in the letter were true, they did believe they confirmed that Mary was murdered. They also considered that if Bill were diabolical enough to murder his wife with an obscure toxin, he was just as diabolical enough to frame his own son for the murder. The original letter read in part, quote, when I saw Adam a couple days ago, he appeared agitated, and he said he was drunk, and he was the reason for her death, and he wished he could take it back. I told him I didn't understand, and he said this. He said he got the chemical. He got the bottle of culture scene, He put the toxin in one of her vitamin supplements when he was over at the parents' house. He said the mom noticed he seemed disturbed at the time, and she thought it was because he had been drinking at their house. Adam said he told her, no, that was not the reason he was disturbed and to drop it. He said he apologized to his parents for ruining the Father's Day holiday. Then, Adam was upset people were not paying more attention to him. He felt he deserved more attention and thought people would be nicer to him. He acted resentfully and belligerent to the immediate family and became visibly irritated. People kept talking about his mother. He says he expected a financial payout after her death, which did not come. After he found out he was not getting the money he thought he would get, he said he regretted what he did and was borderline hysterical and he did not know what he was going to do, but he had ideas, end quote. This letter went on, and it insinuated that Adam might have other people he could kill to get the attention and inheritance that he was expecting. Police had also learned that Adam owed his on- and off-again girlfriend a lot of money, They had to consider that perhaps Adam believed his mother's death would provide him with the almost $23,000 that Katie was demanding on his $15,000 loan. The letter suggested several motives, and despite Adam being closer to his mother than his father, the letter writer seemed to have some kind of inside knowledge that this wasn't really true. In fact, the letter writer suggested that Adam was angry with his mother for not helping him more financially, and recently taking a tough love approach after a lifetime of being Adam's enabler. What interested law enforcement the most about the anonymous letter is that it told them where Adam was hiding the evidence of his crime. The letter told law enforcement how he went about forging his mother's name to get a hold of the toxin, which is a controlled substance, The writer also knew where Adam had hidden the unused portion of the bottle, perhaps keeping it to poison his father next. It looked like someone was trying to hand law enforcement a neatly wrapped up case, including evidence for a slam dunk conviction. However, when something seems too good to be true, it often is. Instead of calling Adam in for an interview, they actually called Bill Yoder in for an official interview. They were surprised when he offered to come in that very afternoon. They still hadn't cleared Bill as a suspect and they let him know that. When he asked how he could help clear himself and get the right person, they had some suggestions. They asked Bill to hand over all of his electronic devices, including his phone, his laptop, and the office computers. They also asked to search his office and his home without a warrant. He agreed to both immediately the fact that he was fully cooperating and showed up without a lawyer was making him look less and less guilty. As many of you true crime listeners know, police can forensically examine an electronic device and not only gather its metadata, but they can also gather data that has been deleted as well. A review of his electronic devices showed that he hadn't deleted anything, and it also documented his relationship, which, while fast, clearly began after Mary was murdered. Bill's electronic devices showed that within weeks of Mary's death, he and Kathy were saying things like, I love you, life is good, the weekend was wonderful, missing your arms, and I'm a happy idiot. They didn't tell Bill about the anonymous letter because if he wasn't the letter writer, they didn't want him to tip off Adam or anything else close to the Yoder family. Next, they call Adam and asked him if he would come in and help them in their investigation. They were curious if he was going to show up in his blue 1991 Jeep, which the letter indicated held the evidence of his guilt, or would he borrow another car for the day? If he did show up in the Jeep, they were curious if he would have removed the evidence. An hour later, on December 8th, 2015, five months after Mary's death, Adam drove himself in the Jeep to the police station. Law enforcement had to rule Adam out, just like they had ruled Bill out, but they also had a strong suspicion that the letter writer was their poisoner. They had already obtained Adam's EZ pass records, which acted as a GPS device. The records showed that Adam's car was at his sister Leona’s home six days prior to Mary's illness. It also showed that as soon as his father called and said his mother was on life support, he drove all night arriving at the hospital at 6.30 a.m. on the day Mary died. It made it unlikely that Adam would be their suspect. Investigators decided to tell Adam that they believe someone was trying to frame him for his mother's murder and see how he reacted. They told him that they received an anonymous letter, which he asked to see. They showed him select portions and asked him if he knew anyone who might want to frame him. He said he and his family first learned that colchicine was the cause of his mother's death in September of 2015. They told very few people, which included his on and off again girlfriend, Katie, as well as his aunts, who ultimately began the investigation to Mary's murder. When Adam first saw the letter, he turned pale white, but couldn't imagine who would try to set him up for the murder. To prove his innocence, he cooperated fully and turned over his iPhone and other electronic devices. However, when they asked to search his vehicle, he was hesitant. He was scared and said before they searched it, he wanted to talk to a lawyer. They arranged to have a public defender speak to him. The lawyer asked him if he had anything to hide and suggested if he was innocent, he should allow them to search his Jeep. After speaking with Liana, Adam finally said yes and was shocked when law enforcement reached under the seat of his Jeep and pulled out a glass bottle of colchicine. It was wrapped in cardboard packaging with the original receipt attached. The receipt was extremely helpful because it showed where and how the toxin was ordered. It was ordered from an email account from adamyoder1990 at gmail.com. Adam had an email similar to that address, but he didn't have the year 1990 in it. They discovered it was ordered from a company by the name of Art Chemicals, and it was delivered on February 6, 2015 to Chiropractic Family Care. And like most packages, it was signed for by Katie Conley. However, to purchase the chemical, the company needed a letter of intent as to its use. The letter was signed by both Adam Yoder and Mary Yoder, However, Mary Yoder's signature appeared to be from a stamp of her own signature that Katie would use in the ordinary course of running the chiropractic office. The letter of intent appeared to be scanned and sent with a cam scanner app, which included a watermark for the app on the recipient's side. It also included fake documents for a business called Cairo Family Care that were also created using the same app. It was close to the business name, but it was different. They learned that the person emailing from the Adam Yoder 1990 account was in a hurry to get a hold of the toxin and tried using two different prepaid gift cards to make the purchase. The second card was finally successful. Now, the letter of intent made it clear that the toxin was being ordered for one of its off brand uses, which is to enhance the growth of plants. The sisters alleged that back in the 1980s, Bill grew a super crop of marijuana using colchicine, but there was no evidence to prove this other than the memories that seemed to implicate Bill. Bill did admit growing a crop of marijuana in the 1980s, but denied growing it with the use of colchicine.
1: Law enforcement asked Adam about his illness in April of 2015. It would have been two months after the culture scene was delivered and police wanted to know if Adam had accidentally exposed himself since the toxin was supposed to be handled carefully with gloves. He told law enforcement that Katie had given him a supplement called Alpha Brain and insisted that he take it to help him study for finals. She told him that it's cumulative, so he had to take it every day. And after giving it to him, she asked him for days if he had taken it yet. Finally, he did, but he didn't really feel a difference. Katie made him promise to take it again the next day because you have to take it daily for it to begin to work. The next day he took it again, but this time he came down with what he thought was the flu. He was so sick that he had his father take him to the emergency room for fluids. It took days before he could function, and it was weeks before he felt like himself again. He told investigators that it felt like something was killing him from the inside. Throughout his illness, he had text messages from Katie asking about his symptoms and wanting to know everything about his diagnosis. She seemed genuinely concerned. Even weeks later, she kept texting him about his illness and wanting to know all the details. She was incredulous that doctors still thought it was an ordinary flu bug. Through the next several weeks, she reportedly texted him about his symptoms. She wanted to know if doctors had figured out what had made him so sick. She kept asking, are you sure it was just a bug? Could it have been food poisoning? But by this time, Adam felt like Katie was using his illness just as an excuse to speak to him as they were broken up. Adam told her this time the breakup was for good. He just couldn't get past her cheating on him with his close friend. And that's when Katie did what she often would do. She made him think that she was going to kill herself so that he would rush to her side and then they would make up. But this time, Adam wasn't falling for it. He told her if she didn't answer her phone, he was going to call her parents. She texts back that she was fine. But she did want Adam to know something he did the previous year. She told him that on the night of July 26, 2014, that he did something to her that she didn't want to bring up because it appeared that he didn't remember it. She told him that when she returned back to his house, he got violent with her. She alleged that he slapped her more than once. She described a sexually violent rape where he put his arm around her throat and threatened to kill her repeatedly. She texted, quote, you were furious I was going to leave. I told you I'd come right back, but you told me I was a liar and I couldn't leave. Katie claimed that Adam jumped from his bed at that point and took her key fob, then stood in between her and the door leading out of his room. Blocking the door, he grabbed Katie and allegedly said, I'm going to break your wrist and snap all of your fingers. Then, according to Katie, Adam told her that no one would believe her and nobody would find her body and that he was going to kill her. Then, Adam allegedly pinned her down with both hands around her throat and told her to say goodbye because he was going to kill her. She said he had a death grip around her throat and she was sure that she was going to die. According to Katie, Adam kept screaming she was a liar and a slut and other terrible names. He kept saying that no one would miss her after he killed her. Katie said she passed out and woke up to Adam forcing her to perform oral sex on him. Then he flipped her over and brutally raped her. Throughout the attack, Adam told her to say goodbye because she was going to die. In her text, she told him, "'You said I'm going to choke you while sitting on my chest,' fingers scraping the roof of my mouth, you in my mouth, I gagged, I couldn't gag, then I couldn't breathe, you flipped me around by my hair, you flipped me back over by twisting my neck, you bit my lip hard, blood, bit my body, biting, pulling, you pulled me on top of you, you slapped my face, my ear rang, you slapped me again, you slapped and slapped before twisting me around again, you kept going and going, then you fell asleep. In her text message, she described her injuries to Adam. She told him that she had a bruise on her upper lip, above her eyebrow and jawline. She said there were also bruises and bite marks on her collarbone, shoulder, breast and large purple bruises on her neck where he allegedly strangled her. According to Katie, he fell asleep. Katie was able to escape to her car, but then she found his inhaler and thought that he might need it. So she went back inside, sat next to him on the bed and finally just fell asleep too. Adam thought this story might have sounded familiar. When they first met, Katie told him that her ex-boyfriend had brutally raped her in a similar manner. When he was done, he made her go downstairs and calmly eat dinner with his family. As a result, Adam had a hard time believing Katie. He asked her if he was the monster who could have done this attack that she described, why did she want to get back together with him? She told him that she had forgiven him because she knew that he didn't remember it. Finally, he told her he thought she was lying. He looked at his calendar and then realized that his roommates were home that night and they didn't hear a thing. And according to his calendar, he and Katie spent the next day together after the alleged attack. He questioned why he didn't notice any of her bruises. She told him that bruises take a while to show up. Then she sent him photos of her alleged bruises. They were bruises, but they didn't depict any injuries she described. There were no cuts or bite marks, and none of the bruises showed her face or any background. They were closely cropped, and Adam began to believe that she might have just downloaded these from the internet. Later, the metadata from these photos would prove him right. When she sent him the photos, she texted, quote, I didn't think even after it happened that bruises show up so dark and soon. I would never want to live in fear of you. I guess you really did want to kill me then. You knew it was me. You said my name those are from you. Adam tried to call her when she sent the texts and photos, but she didn't answer. He told her if she didn't pick up and explain why she sent him random photos from the internet, that they couldn't be friends anymore. Adam was furious she would make up such a serious allegation. A few weeks after the conversation, Katie began dating someone new and casually told her new boyfriend all about Adam's alleged attack just like she told Adam when they began dating about her ex's alleged attack. Katie's new boyfriend drove her directly to the police station and demanded she charge Adam with rape. As a result, she went to the sheriff's office on November 1st, 2014 to file a rape report against Adam. However, it's interesting to note that she didn't show the police any of the photos of her bruises that she sent Adam as proof of her attack. And then, coincidentally, she called back and told the sheriff's department that she no longer wanted to pursue criminal charges.
0: So, after interviewing Adam, police knew that they needed to interview Katie Conley. They were surprised that she showed up to the meeting with copies of the letterhead and envelopes from theodors office. It wasn't something that they even asked for, and they felt that it was telling because the letterhead was different from the letterhead used to write the letter of intent to purchase the colchicine from Art Chemicals. It was as if Katie was providing evidence of her innocence. Quite suspicious, if you ask me. Katie began the interview by telling them that she was devastated after Mary died, and she helped the family organize Mary's memorial service as well as notify patients of her death. During her interview with the police, she confirmed that Mary and Adam had a contentious relationship, and he only looked to Mary for financial support. At the time of Katie's interview, police had a lot of information she wasn't aware of, beginning with the fact that they knew where the murder weapon was purchased from and how it was paid for. They also knew that Katie had signed for the package. Now, they knew that Bill could have easily purchased the toxin in Adam's name and were interested in clearing Bill once and for all. They found it interesting that Katie had a specific recollection of the package. She told them that Bill had told her that there would be a package delivered in Mary's name and to make sure all the packages went to him because he had bought her an early birthday present he didn't want her to know about. And at the time, Katie thought this was odd because why not have the package delivered in his own name? She was asked if she had ever heard of the email account adamyoder1990 at gmail.com, and she said she had never seen the address before, but it was similar to a school account he had with an EDU address. Katie was cooperative and allowed them to download the contents of her phone as she had nothing to hide. That day they wanted to gather background information and both detectives agreed that Katie came off sweet, shy, helpful, and innocent. They asked Katie to come back for a third interview after they received the subpoena information from her phone, her home IP address, and the office computer where she was the person who had preliminary access. They wanted to focus on the inconsistencies from her previous interview. It didn't match up with their evidence, and innocent people have no reason to lie. They also asked her for DNA elimination since the bottle of colchicine recovered from Adam's car had come back positive for female DNA. During Katie's third interview, she confirmed once again that she hadn't seen Adam since September of 2015, two months after Mary's death and after her most recent and final breakup. The problem with this answer Was that they had the latest computer forensic reports, which showed that Katie's home IP address, where she lived with her parents, had actually logged into the Mr. Adam Yoder 1990 Gmail account in October. Since Adam hadn't been to her house, how could he have logged in and used this email? Detectives Nelson and Detective Vaname decided for this interview one of them would be more understanding and allow Katie to give alternative explanations while the other would be more accusatory and narrow her answers by using her own lies against her. Vaname began by asking for her help and finding a motive for Adam to kill his mother. She kept repeating that she was extremely scared of Adam and didn't want him to know that she was helping them. She told them that Adam owed her almost $23,000 with her compounded interest formula and suggested that money may have been his motive to kill his mother. She told them that Adam was really smart, and this scared her because she was worried that if Adam was involved, that he might be able to frame her for the murder. They kept telling Katie she wasn't in any trouble, and they just needed her to be honest and help them to determine if she had any knowledge of who might have been involved in Mary's murder. Within a few moments of this interview, Katie voluntarily admitted to writing the two anonymous letters accusing Adam of Mary's murder. Now, later on in the sister's website, they will say that Katie falsely confessed to writing the letters after a brutal interrogation. The transcripts from this interrogation disproves this contention. It was a voluntary admission early on in the interview when they said that they needed her help and needed more information from the letter writer. That's when she admitted she was the letter writer and only wanted justice for Mary. She also admitted she was worried she could be framed because usually women are poisoners, not men. She clarified her statement and said, they say it's a lady's weapon. She told investigators that last September, three months earlier, Adam had taken her back to Mary's office, freaking out inside the office. This was right after the family learned that Mary had died from colchicine and Adam wanted to go through the office and find something that could have killed his mom. However, this doesn't make sense because why would he be looking for the source of his mom's poisoning if he were responsible? Nevertheless, she alleges that Adam confessed to her that day that he put the remaining colchicine used to kill his mother underneath the passenger seat of his jeep. Katie said she realized she was essentially sitting on the murder weapon. She admitted that Adam told her how he had purchased it. And here is where her story changes again from an earlier interview. Now, she suddenly remembers Adam coming to the office the day it was delivered and picking up the unopened package, when earlier she remembered Bill taking the package, pretending it was an early birthday present for Mary. But that's the problem with lies. You can't remember them or keep them straight. Next, detectives confronted her with their evidence regarding the email address used to purchase the colchicine. They told her that the email account was created on her phone, logged into on her phone, and deactivated at her parents' home IP address. In a previous interview, she denied ever seeing Adam use the Gmail account. Now she admitted that not only was she aware of the email address, she used her own computer to deactivate the email account to prevent Adam from framing her. Forensic examiners had discovered the password to the email account weeks earlier. Of special interest was the fact that the password for the account was also written in Katie's Notes app. The password was Adam is gay. Investigators had a hard time believing Adam would choose a bigoted slur as his own password. When asked if she knew the password, she refused to admit that she knew it, despite needing to deactivate the email address. She told investigators that she had seen Adam using the account at the office when he would come and visit her or pick her up. The only problem is the date and the times the email account was logged into were times when Adam's only electronic footprint proved he was out of the area. They coincided with times Adam was in class, hours away, or times when the two of them were broken up and hadn't seen each other. Katie changed her story again and said she was lucky Adam hadn't logged out, which allowed her to deactivate the account. Her reasoning for lying about this to investigators was because she was concerned that Adam was framing her for murder. What Katie didn't realize is you need to type in the actual password to deactivate the account, so they tripped her up with another lie. Katie became very upset and screamed that she was only trying to help them and asked, how do I know you believe me? They told her if she believed Adam was Mary's killer, they needed help proving it. She said she was afraid they couldn't prove it and all of the evidence would look like she did it because Adam framed her. That's when she told investigators that, quote, at the office that day, he said if anyone was going to get in trouble, it was going to be me, that he made sure that I'm connected to everything, end quote. Investigators bluffed and they told Katie that they had store footage of her purchasing the two prepaid Visa gift cards used to purchase the colchicine She would only admit to buying the cards for a friend, but wouldn't identify the friend. The insinuation was the friend was Adam, and this was just another way he was framing her. Investigators asked Katie to confirm that she never opened the package or touched its contents after Adam picked it up from the office. They asked her if they would find her DNA on the bottle. Katie said she had a vague recollection of closing up the package that had been opened and spilled. It could have been the culture scene bottle, but she wasn't sure. Katie was now changing her answers in real time, afraid she had left her DNA on the bottle. Later, Katie couldn't be excluded as a contributor to the DNA on the cap of the bottle. However, her full DNA was found on the interior packaging wrapped around the bottle and planted under the passenger seat of Adam's Jeep of most importance was that it didn't contain the DNA of Adam or Bill Yoder. Investigators discovered after getting into Katie's phone that she had been lying about certain facts during her first few interviews. Katie used her Notes app extensively to plan out her text allegations and crimes. Katie even wrote versions of the anonymous letter on her phone, and in one note, she reminded herself not to say Adam was drunk when he confessed. It appeared to be the notes of a fiction writer crafting a final draft. 11 days before Adam got sick, she had worked out a dose for a 180-pound man. It's possible her plan all along was to kill Adam. When that didn't happen, investigators believed she always planned to frame Adam for Mary's death. That was delayed because they briefly got back together following Mary's death. During that brief reconciliation, Katie accidentally backed up her phone to Adam's laptop while she downloaded an audiobook from his Apple Store account for a long six-hour drive to Liana's home. After they broke up, a final time, Katie repeatedly told Adam to delete the backup. He never did. It was that backup that the forensic computer expert used to expose all of Katie's lies. They discovered she had purchased the cam scanner app that was used to purchase the culture scene and then deleted it off her phone. She had even accidentally attached one of the documents she needed to purchase the culture scene from the cam scanner app to her school email account and had quickly caught her mistake and deleted that as well. They also discovered that Katie wasn't the shy, quiet girl next door that she portrayed to the world. Katie had been advertising on a dating app looking to participate in threesomes and offering to sell her dirty underwear to strangers. This shocked Adam because Katie was always reserved and grew up in a very conservative household. Their own encounters were certainly not on the kinky side. This tracked with the text messages Katie had sent to Adam's friend, the one she cheated on him with. In that encounter, Katie had always said Adam's friend was the aggressor and portrayed their encounter as accidental and borderline non-consensual. However, the text messages found in the backup of Katie's phone showed that she was the pursuer and the encounter was very much planned and talked about over a period of weeks. Law enforcement felt that Katie was displaying classic signs of antisocial personality disorder and extreme narcissism. People suffering from antisocial personality disorder display a pattern of disregard for right and wrong, persistent lying, arrogance, impulsiveness, lack of empathy, and a general lack of remorse. They felt Katie fell within the antisocial sociopath spectrum. They told Katie that Adam didn't trust her, so why would he confess he murdered his mother to her? They asked her to make it make sense— They also didn't understand why she had forgiven Adam so easily for her alleged brutal rape. She said she didn't hold a grudge because she knew he didn't remember it. They offered to let her take a voice stress analysis test to prove that she was telling the truth, and she declined. Later, the sisters allege on their website that Katie passed a lie detector test. If she did, it wasn't one that she took at the police station. They also discovered a large bag of cash at Katie's home they couldn't understand where a poor college student who had to purchase a used car had so much money or why it wasn't in a bank account or why she had pushed Adam so hard to borrow money from her. Bill, who gave Katie control over billing, later discovered that the cash was likely embezzled from work. It was ironic she was demanding that Adam pay her back with high interest on funds she had embezzled from his own parents. With all of that forensic evidence against Katie, she was arrested for Mary's murder. Her first trial relied heavily on testimony from the forensic computer examiners. The defense strategy was to blame Bill for Mary's murder, since the husband usually had the best motive. And during the trial, Katie's counsel never alleged she didn't write the letters, However, since Bill was the focus, Katie had to say that Adam had confided in her that his father was trying to frame him for his mother's murder. That trial ended in a hung jury. For Katie's second trial, the defense blamed Adam for his mother's murder, as she alleged in the anonymous letters. They left open room for Bill and Adam to have colluded together to frame Katie. For the second trial, the prosecution hired a college professor who had worked with the Secret Service on cybersecurity and computer forensics. He even had a high government clearance. He was much better with explaining to the jury, in an easy and understanding manner, the overwhelming evidence against Katie. Later, the sisters would claim that this expert colluded with police to frame Katie, despite the overwhelming amount of evidence. The second jury compromised by finding Katie guilty of manslaughter. Their thinking behind this was because when she poisoned Adam, he didn't die. He only became ill. They believed that Katie only wanted to make Mary ill and her murder was accidental. The motive for this was because Mary refused to take her side against Adam for his loan and Mary rejected her when she tried to tell her about the alleged rape by Adam. During her sentence, Adam broke down and stated, quote, I introduced Katie Conley to my family, and because I loved her, they all accepted her and treated her as family, as blood. Make no mistake, I hate this defendant with every bone in my body and every drop of blood in my veins. I hate Caitlin Ann Conley because she murdered my mother, end quote. Katie was only sentenced to 23 years behind bars, and to this day, her community and Mary's sisters are advocating for her release. The data on Katie's iPhone and computers proved that she repeatedly and pathologically lied to Adam, Mary, Bill, Mary's sisters, parents, friends, professors, and her school. No one was immune to Katie's manipulative deceptions. On the website maintained by the sisters, they insist that after Mary's death, Bill and Adam spent an unusual amount of time together. They believed, given their history of having a strained relationship, that this was evidence that they were colluding during the time to set up Katie for Mary's murder. They believed, since Bill set up the office computers, which networked with Katie's front desk computer, that together they used VPN software and remote desktop applications were able to reformat the computer and plant evidence. They also noted that Adam and Katie at one time shared an Apple ID. Adam had access to Katie's laptop while they were dating, and he set up her parents' home Wi-Fi network without a password. Further, Katie didn't use a password on her phone. Additionally, despite being a college dropout, they believed that Adam received all A's and one B in his computer science classes, which gave him the skills to frame Katie, which the trial expert explained wasn't possible. To further their argument, they said that Bill was one of the first people that they knew that pirated TV shows in the 80s. Although, to be fair, anyone with a VHS player could record and, quote, pirate a TV show from the 80s. They also alleged that because Bill holds two doctorate degrees in philosophy and was class valedictorian for one of them, that he had specialized army intelligence training. While their belief in Katie's innocence is admirable and their quest to find Mary's, quote, real killer is respected, it's obvious from the overwhelming amount of evidence at both trials that Katie is likely, as experts have suggested, a malignant narcissist and sociopath. As we know from the famous quote attributed to Mark Twain, it's easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled. What we have to remember is they have 40-plus years of family interactions with Bill as Mary's husband, where slights, disagreements, resentments, and grudges can be powerful evidence in forming opinions. In the sisters' minds, it can only be Bill and his quick relationship with Mary's sister, which— would normally be a powerful evidence against him. But when the only way to explain away all of the evidence against Katie means you have to go deep down a road of absurd conspiracy theories, it might be time to take a step back and ask if you have been fooled by a seemingly sweet girl in a demure dress. In the website that they update regularly, they made the outrageous claim that Liana's mother-in-law died unexpectedly a few months before Mary from a similar illness. They noted that Liana had great animosity and hatred for her mother-in-law. So to currently believe that Katie is innocent, they now allege Bill murdered Mary with colchicine, giving her a brutal and horrific death with the help of not only Adam's expert hacker skills, but also Liana's medical knowledge and that Liana may have also killed her mother-in-law. That's how good of a liar Katie is. She got these grieving sisters to believe outrageous conspiracy theories, all so they don't have to admit that they were fooled and lied to by a dangerous sociopath hiding in plain sight. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be with you next week please be sure to leave us a supporting review and follow us everywhere on social media. Thank you.